Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Another beautiful day in May in McKinney, Texas. It's been cool this year. It's been a beautiful weather month and beautiful weather year so far. Since we're not even having summer yet. Praise be to God. So thank you all for joining me in my home. And thank you all from coming from SoundCloud and YouTube and wherever you're watching me or hearing me from. Praise be to God. You're like you're in my living room, just like my family and my beloveds that are here in my living room. Uh, thank you so much for coming and welcome. So anyway, praise be to God. It's a joy that I get up to stand up here and teach you guys the word of God another Sunday, another week. However long the Lord keeps me going, that's how long I'll keep going. So our, uh, we're going to study Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4 this week. I'm going to read them, but I'm going to pray first. And... Uh, the title of this week's sermon is Red Sky at Night, Sailor's Delight, Red Sky in the Morning, Sailor's Warning. So I'm going to read and then pray, and then we're going to study. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here. Thank you so much for allowing us to hear your word and read your word, and thank you so much for all the Wonderful things that you show us in your word. Thank you so much, Lord God. Praise you, dear God, so much. Thank you so much for your love for us, and for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, we uh, love you and ask that your provision would be upon this service, Lord, today. We ask that you would give us revelation and wisdom and knowledge and truth, Lord, and help us to see truth in your word. And, and Lord, just all the good things that you have for us, Lord, and fill us up, Lord, spiritually. Lord, uh, we feed our physical bodies every day all the time. But Lord, uh, we need to fill our spiritual man's more. He's got to eat more too. And I just pray that we would be full, Lord, today in our spiritual man after we hear your word and, and hear me teach it, Lord God. We love you. We praise you. Bless the service. Keep the, dent, keep the devil out of here, out of this place and keep him out of our minds, Lord. And pray the little whispers and his little things that he says, Lord, would all just be gone, Lord, they, they wouldn't even exist, Lord, today, that we'd hear you clearly. Praise you and thank you and we love you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said earlier, the title of today's sermon is Red Sky at Night, Sailor's Delight, Red Sky in the Morning, Sailor's Warning. And you might be thinking, whoa, I'm, that's a weird title for a Sunday morning church service. And yeah, I'd have to agree, it actually was. I actually just got it last night. I uh, didn't have the title of this week's sermon until last night, my last night of preparation, and I prepare Sunday mornings, and I just got it last night. So let's read our Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, and you'll actually see where it comes into play, and I'll show you how it actually applies to today's sermon. Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. If you guys want to read along with me, you can, otherwise you could just listen. 16.1, the Bible says, then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign should be given it or given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left and he departed from there. So what do we have? I'll paint our scene again. Remember, just a couple weeks before this, and last week too, we were studying how Jesus was on foreign soil. And he was doing all these healings in the Decapolis region, you know, amongst the you know, the 12 to 16,000 people that he fed. And, you know, that was last week. And the, you know, all the multitudes amongst them that he healed. And then the week before that, we read about the, the woman from Tyre and Sidon, the Syrophoenician woman that came to him. And uh, she wanted a healing for her severely demon-possessed daughter. And remember, Jesus did this all when he was out of season. He wasn't ready to serve people. He went to these foreign lands like we just talked about the last two or even three weeks to, to get away from people. He got away initially even before the feeding of the 5,000 because of John the Baptist's death and he was hurting because of that. He wanted to get away. 
He wanted to be alone. He wanted to get by himself and just with him or just him and his disciples and be intimate and just, you know, chill out and relax and, and have peace and not be bothered by all the multitudes that constantly surrounded him in Israel. And remember how last week we looked at the, you know, his love is deeper than anything in the whole world because, you know, he did all these healings. He did all these miracles and these signs amongst all these peoples when he's not, wasn't even ready to minister. You know, and we talked about how, you know, our fleshly thing would be to, you know, somebody comes to us and we're not wanting to minister. We, we want to reject that. We want to lash out. But Christ was so loving and patient and so kind to these people that were coming to him and, you know, wanting something from him all the time. And I just got to say, you know, again, praise God for his love. Amen. Amen. Praise God for his love. He's so loving and he cares so much. So he gets done doing all these miracles. And in Matthew 15, 39, where it reads, and he, and he, Jesus, sent away the multitudes and they got into a boat and he came into the region of Magdala. He gets into a boat. They cross back over from the region of the Decapolis and the foreign land back over to the land of Israel, to the sea or across the Sea of uh, Galilee back into Magdala or a city in Israel. And, you know, by doing this, he puts himself back in the mix of things. He puts himself back in the, the hustle bustle of Israel, you know, where he knew that often multitudes of people would be thronging him and multitudes of people would be coming to him and pressing on him because, you know, that's where he did most of his miracles. Jesus did most of his miracles in Israel. That's where people knew him. That's where his fame started. And so he puts himself back in the limelight, back in season to, to be there for the people that knew who, what he was all about. So now after all the powerful display of love that he just showed all those that he served, taught, fed, and healed, what kind of reception do you think he should have received coming back into Israel? I mean... After all, you know, especially the Bible says in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that he will also reap. Now, what does that mean? It means whatever we do in life, whether good or bad, the Bible says, God says, I saw you do it. Reap what you sow is a saying in Christendom. Whatever you do in life, good or bad, evil or good, you know, evil or godly, it's going to come back on you. If you sow to the flesh and you do evil, then what that means is God sees it as evil. It's a law. It's going to come back on you. And I've experienced that in my own life, unfortunately. I did a lot of evil and a lot of evil came upon me. Well, then the good things I do now, you know, a lot of, a lot of blessings happen to me now. A lot of good things happen to me now. So with that law in effect, what kind of greeting, what kind of, you know, what kind of greeting, what kind of reception should Jesus Christ have gotten? Well, what kind of things did he do? Well, he loved people. He told people the truth. He was always kind to people, even those that were evil to him, for he practiced what he taught. He wasn't a hypocrite. So what kind of reception should he have gotten? Since all he did was good. Even when the religious leaders came to him and they were arguing with him, he answered them in love back and he just told them the truth back. Well, the truth hurts and, and it may have sounded not very nice coming because you know, people don't like the truth. It hurts. Truth penetrates your heart. But he was still always kind and always good and always loving and always caring toward everybody that he came in contact with. So what kind of reception should he have received? Well, he should have received a good one, right? He should have received, a, a, you know, open arms, people, you know, kissing him and hugging him and bowing before his feet. And he, he should have, you know, had those things happen to him. But is that what he received? Go back to 16 verse 1 and let's see again. Let's refresh our memories and see what kind of reception he received after, you know, for all the good that he did, let's see all what the, how, how he reaped what he sowed here. Unfortunately, he didn't. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him, they asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. So he didn't get that at all. He didn't get good back at all. Because you see, there is a devil. And he was God in the flesh. And of course, the devil hated what he was doing. He was bringing people from the power of Satan unto God. And of course, the devil hates that. So he didn't get any praise at all, yet he was attacked. 
Remember we talked about this a couple few weeks ago about how, you know, in ministry it's a praise God, praise God, praise God, miracle, awesome thing, awesome thing, awesome thing, awesome thing, and then bam, it's like an endless vicious cycle. You do great for God, do awesome for God, and then Satan can't stand that you did that good, and so what does he do? He throws a curveball at you. He attacks you. This is exactly what happened to Jesus here. He's, he's, he's struggling, you know, he, he did all these miracles, he did all these good things, and then as that, you know, brought, I'm sure a lot of people believed in him because of what he did, and he comes back over and wham, he gets hit up by the evil-hearted Pharisees who come to test him. He steps right back into a hornet's nest of a brood of vipers that came to test him. Now, were they good tests like the disciples gave him? Were they good tests like, you know, Abraham and, and Gideon tested God with back in the Old Testament and back in the times with the disciples? No. You know, they wanted to really know who he was, and they, because of faith and, a, you know, doubting of their faith, oh, Lord God, I just want to know it's you. Please, you know, help me to know that you. Help me to know the truth. I, can you do this? Because I, I just really want to know. No, they weren't good tests like that. The tests that they give him was almost like, you know, how you how you test a, a circus monkey. Come on, little monkey. Come on, little foo-foo. Jump through the hoop. You know, it's a good trick. You know, I, I want to see you do it again. You know, they were testing him for entertainment purposes. They were not testing him because they earnestly really wanted to see a sign so that they would really believe and start following. Absolutely not. They wanted to test him because it was an ent entertainment for them. They were wicked and evil-hearted. So they ask a sign slash miracle from Jesus, even though he just did all the supernatural signs and wonders and miracles that he just did across the sea in the region of the Capitalists. And, and even remember that I'm sure there were some Gentiles that he healed in the region of Decapolis because although he came for the children of Israel, he, he, he would, because of faith, heal the Gentiles well too. But even that he healed the Gentile woman's, the Syrophoenician daughter's uh, woman's daughter from the severely demon-possessed, he did that. So, but you say, is it right? Should they have been allowed to test him, Pastor Ed? Because, you know, they didn't see them after all. They didn't see all the supernatural miracles that Jesus just did on, in the region of Decapolis. So what do you think? Did they have the right to test him? Did they have the right to ask him? Since after all, they weren't privy to all these miracles that he just did. Well, I tell you, absolutely not. They were not worthy. They were not, they had no right to ask him for a test. They had no right to ask him to do another sign and another miracle. And you say, why? Well, because before this, he absolutely did all kinds of supernatural miracles before these people that gave them enough information, enough proof that he was who he said he was, so that they could believe and that they could follow. In fact, not too long before this time, they saw him do a miracle in their own synagogue. They saw it with their own eyes. Remember Matthew 12, 9 through 14. I'll read it. Now, when he, Jesus, had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, this would be the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? This is another test they were putting forth to him to see if he'd heal on the Sabbath. Verse 11. Then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Listen to this, verse 13. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Wow. Praise be to God. So what do you think the Pharisees' response was to that? Verse 14, Pharisees, same as today, then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. So sad. Here we see that the Pharisees, as I said earlier, the same type of religious sect that we see in our scripture today that came to test him, they saw a sign from heaven. They saw him do a miracle. And what did they do with the sign? What did his sign that he showed them cause them to do? Well, they went out and found ways and tried to see ways that they would destroy him. And in fact, the sign did them no good at all. 
the sign made them angrier than they were even before he healed the man. Yet they wanted a sign, and yet here they supposedly wanted a sign so that, you know, maybe they were faking, well, we just want to believe in you. No, they didn't. They were just testing him. And right after this healing that they saw, this healing slash miracle slash sign that they just saw in Matthew 12, when they saw it with their own eyes, they got a chance to hear of one right after this in Matthew 12, 22 through 24, where the Bible records, Then one was brought to him, Jesus, who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and Jesus healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Because they were starting to see all the miracles that he was doing. And they were like, wow, I've never seen anybody do things like this. Could this be him? Oh, I, I, I think so. Now listen, now the, the Pharisees heard it. Now they heard this one. So they didn't see it. They heard of this one. They said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. He goes on, remember, if you remember, we studied that. He goes on to tell them the truth about their wicked hearts. And he goes on to tell them about how he's from God, you know, and about how they're being evil and whatever, you know, comes out of the man's mouth is what defiles him and so on and so forth. So the scribes and Pharisees answer him back in regards to him saying, I'm from God, you're really of the devil. And they say to him in Matthew 12, 38, teacher, we want a sign from you. Well, now they just heard of this one. I'm sure they came upon the scene even after it was done. And I'm sure they saw the man, which everybody knew was demon-possessed. And of, of course, they saw him sitting there. He was blind and mute. I'm sure they saw him. They didn't see the miracle, but they heard about it. And yet they still asked him for a sign right after that. And he tells them, just like today, that an evil and wicked generation seeks after a sign. And goes on to tell them about Jonah, which is similar to today's meeting. This is twice that now they've done this. At least they've recorded biblical you know, accounts that they asked him this. Now, mind you, I only pulled out just two accounts of him actually doing these miracles and these signs from heaven that really nobody else could do out of Matthew's gospel. In other Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, there were all kinds of other things that Jesus was doing all over the place to everybody and in front of everybody where people were seeing. I just, for time's sake, I only pulled out those two where they were personally involved, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. There were so many other accounts where Jesus did supernatural signs and wonders and miracles before people that these people really had no excuse not to surrender to him as their promised Messiah and become his followers. Now you say, maybe they didn't believe in him for sure. Maybe you're not giving them the benefit of the doubt, Pastor Ed. Maybe they really didn't believe in him. But I say that they did believe in him. And I actually have proof to show you that they actually believed in him, that these tests were not to help them believe because they absolutely believed in him. And how do we know this? Well, number one, they had the prophecies of their what they call the Tanakh, which is the Christian Old Testament Bible, where it clearly stated that the Messiah would come and do all these supernatural miracles and healings and signs, which Jesus Christ was doing, said that he would bring light to the Gentiles. It said all kinds of things that the Messiah would do when he came, and Jesus was fulfilling them all one by one. But even on top of that, we even have another section of scripture that shows us, it's a very famous one in fact, but it's right before the famous part, that where it actually shows us that they absolutely believed in him, and it's in John 3, 1 through 2. Now John 3 is where Jesus talks about being born again, but John 3, 1 and 2, a lot of people missed this. And I missed it for a long time until God showed it to me not too long ago. John 3, 1 and 2. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now what was he again? He was a Pharisee. He wasn't uh, anything else. He wasn't just a regular average Jewish person. He was a Pharisee. This man, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. It's a very popular account in the Gospels. John 3, 1 and 2. A ruler of the Jews. And listen to what he says. This man came to Jesus by night. Well, he comes by night because he didn't want anybody to see him coming. And he said to him, 
rabbi, which means teacher. It's a holy word for rabbi, actually. It's a holy word for teacher, rabbi. We know, we know. What does that mean? We know, I know it in my brain. We know that you are a teacher come from God. We know it. We believe it. He's a Pharisee. We, who's the we? He's not talking about himself. He said, we, who's the we? We Pharisees. Well, who was attacking him today? Pharisees. Who's, who's testing him back in Matthew 12? Pharisees. Yet here, a Pharisee who's seeking comes and says, we Pharisees know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In case you're wondering, well, Pastor Ed, is a miracle really a sign? Yes, all he had been doing was miracles. And this man says to him, no one does the signs which you do unless God is with them, unless you're from God. So the Pharisees absolutely knew and believed that he was the Christ, that he was Messiah. Jesus did an ample amount of signs, wonders, and miracles fulfilling all the prophecy, showing and proving to everyone that he was the Christ, the promised Jewish Messiah. And I will say it again. These guys here today in Matthew 16, the Pharisees from back in Matthew 12, and all throughout the New Testament, they had absolutely no excuse not to surrender to him and follow him as their promised Messiah because they absolutely believed in him. With all their heart, they believed in him. So, how does he answer these testers? How does he answer these hard-hearted Pharisees that came to test him? Did he give them a sign? Did he? Let's read verses 2 and 3. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Hypocrites. You could see what I'm doing. You could see these signs in the heavens, and yet you still are refusing. Pretty powerful response, I would say. And why didn't he? Why did Because he could have again. Why didn't he go ahead and give him another sign, another wonder, or another miracle? Why didn't he? Well, as I just said, they constantly were seeing signs and wonders and miracles all throughout his ministry. They had no excuse. Literally, God showed me this. Jesus Christ could have stood right there before him, and he could have done sign, miracle, sign, wonder, miracle, sign, one miracle for hours and days and weeks and months before these people. And yet they still wouldn't believe. They still wouldn't surrender and follow. And you say, why? Why? Well, I have the why. The why is pride. It's the problem of every human heart. The why is pride. They simply didn't want, <clears throat> excuse me, to give up the power they had over the people that were religious, that they ruled over. Nor did they themselves want to surrender their own lives to him and follow him. They wanted to have the control over the people that they ruled over, and they wanted to have control over their own lives. It had nothing to do with whether they believed or not. They had enough proof to believe that they had no right to come and test him here. They had no right to come and test him at any time. Because he did things that only the Messiah was going to do. Amazing. They had no excuse not to surrender to him. So let's look at his response in depth to them to see how and why he answered them the way he did. Okay? I'm going to read verses 2 and a part of 3 again, and then we're going to go look at it. So his answer again in depth. He answered and said to them, verse 2, When it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. So he's noticing something in the heavens. The, the sky and the space, that's called the heavens. Verse 3, And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Here he points out, notice, 
the obvious fact of nature that they received and accepted as absolute universal truth. He points out a sign that God gave people in nature to help them understand the weather so that they could what? Plan ahead. There is even a clever saying that most likely sailors came up with, which is exactly what Jesus said here. And that's where we get the title of our sermon today. And this is a, this is a, a saying that I believe came from old sailors when they were sailing on the ocean. And the saying is the title of today's sermon, Red Sky at Night, Sailor's Delight, which is exactly what Jesus just said here, and Red Sky in the Morning, Sailor's Warning. What does that mean? That means if the sky is red at night, then they knew, everybody knew wherever they were, people that studied the weather, they knew that the next day's weather was going to be beautiful. No storms, gorgeous day, beautiful day, you know, good for sailing, farmers, good for planting crops, so on and so forth. But then they knew that red sky in the morning, the next morning, meant Sailor's warning, meant it meant that weather, foul weather, stormy weather was on its way. It was coming, whether that day or the next day or it was in, it was in the future. So he points out a clear, plain as day sign that everybody knew about nature and the fact that everyone, even them, accepted openly as 100% truth. Why did he do this? Let's read from hypocrites, verse 3. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the sign of the times. What's he saying? He's saying something very powerful. What he was doing was he was paralleling how easy the signs were to see that he was given people to prove himself to people, to mankind, that he was the Jewish Messiah, the Christ, to what? To the universal signs that God gave to people about the weather. The sky is red at night, no storm. If the sky is red in the morning, it's going to be storming. He just gave that parallel there. Everyone, get this, in their own part of the world, wherever they are, everybody has view of the sky. Everybody has view of the sky that's above their head. And if it's not cloudy, oh, if it's severely cloudy, you, I don't think you can see it, but if it's not severely cloudy, which most days are not, everybody can see this old tale, this old saying that they had, red sky at night, sailors tonight. Sailor's delight, red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. And why could they? It was actually, it's actually a universal scientific truth. And if the sky is red in the morning, that meant that as the sun was rising, it showed, you know, certain molecules of water in the air. And if it was red at night, then the sun at its, at its level was hitting those water molecules and showing that the rain was actually coming. And there was rain in the horizon going to be coming either, you know, later on that day or the next day. So it's actually a scientifically proven way that everybody could know what the weather was going to be like the next day. And Jesus parallels that understanding that everybody could see, it wasn't hidden from anybody, to the fact of him showing all the signs and wonders and miracles to prove to people that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ. Everyone in the areas that Christ ministered in could easily see that he was fulfilling prophecies that proved him to be the promised Jewish Messiah or the Christ. Now, did everyone else who saw the signs that he did besides the Jewish leaders really accept the fact that he was this Christ, this promised Jewish Messiah? Do we really see this in Scripture? Do we really see this fact in Scripture? Well, boy, I could tell you, we see it all over the place. Here's just a few for time's sake. In John 4, right after John 3 with Nicodemus, this Jesus and his disciples leave from one place and they're going 
back to, I believe it's Israel. So they had to go through a little place called Samaria. So while they went through Samaria, Jesus got hungry. His disciples leave him by a well. And there, while he's at the well, waiting for his disciples to get food, this woman comes along. This Samaritan woman comes along. And he asks her for a drink. And, you know, I don't know if you guys know the story, just a little bits about the, about the story. Jews really never talked to Samaritans, yet Jesus was talking to her, so she noticed that. And he says, you know, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you know, you would have given me a drink. You would have said, you know, give me the water which leads to everlasting life. And she says, you know, they go through this big, long, you know, conversation and everything. Anyway, it ends up with uh, her asking him something, and then he says, yeah, you know, look at what I'm asking. You know, I can give it to you. And she's, well, you know, the Jews say this and we say that. He tells her some awesome things about her life that nobody could have known, especially not a Jew. She starts to wake up. Oh, my gosh. <gasps> this is amazing. I think that this might be the Christ. This guy is, to this guy is, is saying amazing things. And in John 4, 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now, this is a Samaritan woman now, not even a Jew. So then they went out of the city and they came to him. Well, down to verse 39, they had a little, you know, they asked him to stay a couple days. John verse four, uh, chapter 4, 39 through 42. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word, the woman who testified. So many came, many other Samaritans in that village, in that city came. Then they started believing in him because of what the woman, uh, you know, the word of the woman. So he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed in him because of his own word. Listen to this. This is a Samaritan village. This is not people that knew and were familiar with the scriptures like the Pharisees and the religious leaders that would have been. Then he says in verse 42, then they say, or they say, the crowds, for, verse 42, then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know, listen to what they figured out, by him being there with them, by him teaching them, by him doing whatever he did while he was there, and now we know, we've heard him, we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. This is a testimony by non-Jews, people that did not know the Scripture, and they could tell by what he was saying and by whatever he was doing that he, out of their own mouths, we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So they could see it, and he was only there two days. Now, John 7, 2 and 3, I'm just going to give you three. John 7, 2 and 3, there was a feast of the tabernacles, and it was at hand, John 7. His own brothers, which testifies in this very scripture that they did not believe in him, or, or you could say they didn't follow him. Verse 3, his brothers said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, because, you know, this feast of the tabernacles was coming that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Those are signs. His own brothers, although they refused to follow him, they refused to believe that he was Messiah, that he was Christ, they were asking him to go to this feast so that his disciples, which would be not his 12, this is the masses of people that were kind of like his, you know, in and out disciples, so that they could see the things that he was doing. You go down a little bit to 7, 14, and 15, where it says, Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus goes into the temple and he teaches. Now, Jesus was not a high Jew. He was not a Pharisee. He was not a religious leader. He was just a Jewish man. Well, just Jewish men had, really, they did not have access to the scripture like the leaders, like the Jewish religious leaders would have had. So he, about the middle of the feast, goes into the temple and he starts teaching. Here's another sign for you. And the Jews, not leaders now, I told you these are going to be examples out of non-leaders. And the Jews marveled, saying, how did this man, you notice they just call them this, this man, not a special teacher or anything, not a special rabbi, not a special priest. How did this man know letters? 
having never studied. What they were saying was he wasn't part of the mainline religious, you know, teaching leader section of Jewish men. He was just a man. And yet, although he's never studied, he knows these supernatural things about the letters, about God's word. So conflict arises because, you know, of the conversation that they were having, some of the conversation they were, they were having between, you know, Jesus and these guys that were marveling because he knew all this supernatural information. And, and this, this conflict rises up. And so in John 7, 30 and 31, after this kind of going back and forth and Jesus going a little bit and then them going a little bit, here's what we read. John 7, 30 and 31, amongst these same people. Therefore, they sought to take him, because they were getting so angry with him. But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And listen to what many of the people said. Verse 31. And many of the people believed in him and said, this is their testimony now, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? So they acknowledged right there that this man, the man of Jesus Christ, had done so many signs. If, if, there, if there was a Christ, is he, is he good? Like their brains were like on tilt because they had to believe, but they were like, wait a minute, I, I don't, is this really him? But I, is the one that comes going to do more signs, miracles than this guy's been doing? Wow. Because that goes to show you he was doing things so that the masses knew who he, would, who he was. And last one, John chapter 9. We call him the man born blind from birth. And so 9-1, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. So Jesus and his disciples and multitudes were walking with him. He sees on the side of the road a man born blind from birth. So what does he do? He stops. He heals them. People start questioning the man because they can't believe that he was the man born blind. You know, after all, he can now see, and he, they knew he was born blind. People were confused. They were like, well, I don't know. How did you get you were born blind? Nobody that had ever been born blind had ever, ever seen again. That's not nothing that anybody had ever done. Not Moses. Not Joshua, not Elijah, nobody, none of the ancient prophets, nobody had ever gotten, ever healed somebody born blind. Nobody ever got healed. If they were born blind, you were blind till you died. Now, people are kind of confused. People that knew him, they start questioning them. Well, what's going on with you? Are you really the guy? So he talks to them, yeah, I'm the man. They, all the masses of people, bring this man to the religious leaders who question him because they are disbelieving his story. So the religious leaders call the man's parents. They're like, uh, I can't believe this man's testimony. He, he's been born blind from birth. If that's really him, that's never happened before. They call the man's parents in. They start questioning the man's parents. And then, yeah, yeah, this, that, that, that's our son. And yeah, he, he was born blind from birth. Absolutely. Well, then, you know, tell us how it happened. Well, they were scared of the Jews because the, the Jews had threatened to anybody that confessed Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah, they were going to throw him out of the synagogue. So they all, oh, we, we don't know. They lied. So the man comes back in and the religious, religious leaders start questioning him again. Well, he gives glory to God. He starts glorifying God, you know, because he didn't even know Jesus' name at this point. He just knew the man that came that healed him, all these things, that, you know, being blind from birth. He just knew that this man, and, and the Pharisees were trying to attack Jesus, even though the man didn't know it was Jesus. And so the man's sticking up for Jesus, and he's, he's saying all these amazing things about Jesus. You know, well, how, how is it you don't believe in him, even though he, he just did a miracle that, you know, like nobody else has ever done? And, uh, like, give, give glory to God, because, you know, we know God doesn't hear sinners, and yet this man prayed for me, and you know, well, how can this man not be from God? And yet you guys don't believe him, you know. And so they they were really attacking him, and so they get into this big thing, and they end up kicking him out because he just won't accept the fact he won't say Jesus is a fraud. And so Jesus hears about this, John nine thirty five through thirty eight. Jesus heard that they had cast the man out, and when he found him, he said to him, "Do you believe in the Son of God?" <coughs> Verse 36, and the man answered and said, well, Who is he, Lord, that, that I may believe in him? 37, and Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. I'm him. 
man born blind from birth, that you, I healed you, the one you're talking to now, I'm that man that you just said there. I'm the man. I'm, I'm him. Listen to the man's response. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And he worshipped him. So did the others outside of the religious leaders see his signs, Jesus' signs, and believe that he was the Messiah? Absolutely they did. Absolutely 100% did they. The signs of the time showing that Jesus was the Christ, was the promised Jewish Messiah, were so plain that literally somebody would have had to have been blind, deaf, and in a coma to not realize that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ. These people's testimonies show us that these religious leaders did believe and absolutely knew that Jesus was the Christ. But they simply refused to surrender him as their Lord and start following him as their promised Messiah. They knew all that they knew. They just refused to surrender and follow him. That's why there's no wonder why in Matthew 16, 4, Jesus finishes up this meeting with these hard-hearted Pharisees the way he did. Read verse 4 with me again. Right after he calls them hypocrites, he says in verse 4, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them, and he departed. He was saying, Well, if you won't believe in me after all the signs and wonders and miracles that you've seen and heard about, that I've already shown you, I'm not going to give you any more <coughs> signs and miracles at all. So now, since you won't believe in me now, you're just going to have to wait for the sign that I'll give to everybody again about this man named Jonah. You'll just have to look and you'll have to parallel something about that. And of course, he remembered what, of course, they would have remembered what he said in Matthew 12, 40. It spread. He didn't, because he didn't break it down specifically about three days in the grave here, but he did in Matthew 12, 40, where he tells them under the same context. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he was talking about when he was going to die and when he was going to rise again. So they knew the sign to be looking for that would prove once and for all that he was the Christ because in their Tanakh or our Christian Old Testament, we have the prophecy of Psalms 1630 uh, where David writes about the Messiah, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol and you will not, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So David had prophesied that the Christ would not, go, would not be dead forever, that he, would, that he would not see eternal death. As he, we know that on the third day, he rose again. Jesus rose again. So sadly enough, though, sadly enough, and here's where it really does get sad. Even though these guys had this sign to look forward to, these religious leaders, the sign that Jesus gave to everybody, even though they had the sign that everybody could see again, you know, red at night, sailor's delight, red in the morning, you know, sailor's warning, even though they had this powerful saying and this powerful, you know, all these miracles and signs that they had to look forward to, they did not look forward excitedly in hope or in truth. For example, after he said that, they could have been like, oh boy, Wow, he just gave us another one. Now, if he doesn't die for good, if he doesn't stay in the grave, well, well, now we'll really know he's the Christ. Well, now we'll really know he's the Messiah. No, they didn't look at it that way at all. In fact, instead, after his death on the cross, on the uh, death on the cross and the burial in the tomb, they, if you want to go to Matthew 27, 62 through 64, where we read the recording of how they responded to his death, how they responded to what the things that he said while he was alive. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, listen to what they say here, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said. Notice how their hearts weren't open to anything he said while he was alive. They called him a deceiver. 
That deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Referencing back to our scripture today. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Least his disciples come by night and steal him away. And say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will actually be worse than the first. So that was their response to after his death and his burial. Isn't that so sad? They didn't even have an open heart to see if he really was going to raise on the third day. They had no open heart. Then the third day came, and we all know what happens. On the morning of the third day, the guards are all around the sealed tomb. Well, an earthquake happens. The, ground, the guards fall to the ground like dead men. An angel appears, and the stone rolls away. Maybe not in those the same exact order. The guards laying there, they're seeing the whole thing, and they're laying there like dead men. And then the angels and then Christ come out, and they meet Mary. And they have this little conversation right there in front of the guards that are seeing them right there doing all this. And they're laying there like dead men. They're frightened to death. And then in Matthew 28, 11 through 13, as Mary and whoever went, went away from the tomb to go tell everybody else what happened, listen to what the guards did. Then the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests, here we got the religious leaders again, all things that happened. They saw the angels, or they felt the earthquake, saw the stone roll away, saw the angels, and then saw Christ talk to Mary. <clears throat> they saw all things that happened. <clears throat> they, the guards, had no right to have any excuse not to believe and follow and trust in him and turn to him too. So when they had assembled, since you know now the, the Pharisees and the priests, they have all this information. When they had assembled with the elders and the counselors and consulted together, listen to what they did. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. Now, they called Jesus a deceiver, and yet they had direct testimony of the guards at the tomb that saw the resurrection happen, saw Christ alive again after they knew he was dead. They come, they tell the religious leaders the truth. They tell them all that would happen. Instead of falling down, repenting before God, seeking the Lord in repentance. Lord, I'm so sorry we were wrong. How, how did we miss it? Oh, I can't believe it. They pay off the guards and tell the guards to go lie, saying that the disciples came at night and stole away the body. Wow. What liars the religious leaders were. They just refused to surrender to him and start following him as their promised Jewish Messiah. So Jesus Christ proves himself time and time again, showed people over and over and over that he was the promised Jewish Messiah. Nobody had any doubt that he was the Christ, the Savior of the world. Nobody. Nobody in his day when he lived had any doubt that he was who he said that he was. I can say the same for all people of today. People don't have any excuse or they shouldn't have any doubt that he is the Christ or the Savior of the world. Well, see, although we don't have Jesus Christ standing and living among us today, we still have the same Tanakh. We still have the same Jewish Old Testament or Tanakh or, Old, or Christian Old Testament of our Bible the same, with the same precious prophecies that spoke of Christ when Jesus was alive himself. Our three main facts, our three main proofs that our Bible and that Christ are real and the things that we can actually dig into the Bible and we can find realities of are archaeology, history, and prophecy. The Bible holds all three of those tools. It's an accurate historical account. It has accurate archaeology in there. The Smithsonian effect uses the Bible for its archaeological digs. It goes into areas where the Bible said it was, you know, it was a battle took place or a city that was, and it. they go there and they find and they dig and they find exactly what the Bible says. And yet the Bible has 
prophecy of the Christ, of the end of the world, of the end times, and so on and so forth, which has Jesus fulfilled and as he did. If you go through Psalm 16.10, remember, David writes about how the Messiah would not see corruption. He would not see eternal death. His body would basically not rot. In Psalm 22, David writes again, and he perfectly details out the cross. He perfectly details out the crucifixion of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 53, we have the suffering Messiah. We had what the Messiah was going to come and do. He was going to come and he was going to die for the sins of the world. And this whole chapter, Isaiah chapter 53, details out all why and why Jesus did what he did and why and, and, and what he did it for. And it details out exactly what he did and exactly what happened to him. We have Isaiah 53. Isaiah 7:14, we have the recorded prophecy of the virgin birth. God speaks about 800 years before Christ was born that the Messiah would come and be born of a virgin. We have Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, that the Messiah would be from David's lineage. If you ever remember us reading, oh, son of David. Well, that was a messianic term that people were calling him in his day. Oh, son of David, have mercy on me. They get that from Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, because they could tell this is the Christ. He's from that line of David. Oh, son of David, have mercy on me. They could tell. They knew that this was the Christ. You have all these prophecies that spoke about Jesus. And then look to Christ, because we can, to see that he fulfilled every single one of the things that were written about him in the Old Testament or the Tanakh. And he did them in the New Testament, in his life. And it's easy to see to this very day that he is the Christ, the only Savior of the world. We can go back to this very day. We have absolute authoritative uh, manuscripts and proof that the Bible has never, ever, ever been corrupted. We have umpteen thousand manuscripts Proof upon proof upon proof upon proof that the Bible was never and has never been contaminated or changed. And we have all this proof. And we can read the prophecies. And then we can read the New Testament and see that Jesus fulfilled them. And then we can learn about how the Bible's never been tampered with or, you know, or people messed with it or changed what it really said. We have all this proof because the Bible is the most reliable book on the face of the planet. It's, you can prove the Bible. You can prove the things in the Bible. If you're willing to seek out and have an open mind to truth and not be closed off to the lie that the world tells you of evolution, evolution and such, the truth is all right there. In closing, if we look at the solid proof of these prophecies and the reliability of the New Testament and the Bible as a whole, we can easily see that God made the proof of Christ and his word amazingly accurate and powerfully true and trustable. Absolutely. God gave the same amazing signs of Christ as he gave the red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky in the morning, sailor's warning to people to show them the weather. We have those same signs. We have the same things to show us, the same proofs today that we can see in our Bible. Now, with all those truths very clear to mankind, there's only one thing left to do. Can't say we don't believe, because if you really earnestly look at the truths of the Bible and the things and these facts that I brought up to you, you can't honestly say that I don't believe in God or I don't believe in Jesus Christ. That's just a cop-out. There's only one thing that anybody has left to do. Decide whether you're going to know them and understand them and believe them. And here's your two choices of today. Do as the Pharisees did, where although they knew about everything that he said, they knew he was real, they knew he was the Messiah, they knew he was the Christ, and yet what did they do? They rejected him with a willful heart. We can do that. We can know him all and believe in him and everything and even believe all the proofs about him and know that he's real and know that he's true. And then we can reject him like they did. Or 
we can do as the blind man that was born from birth did. Remember what he did when he finally learned that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, the promised Jewish Messiah. What did he do? He said, I believe, Lord, and he fell down and he worshipped him. Which example will you be today? Will you be like a Pharisee? Or will you be like the blind man born from birth that way? God's heart is that all of us are like the blind man born that way from birth. That's God's heart. That's God's desire. Because you know how I know that? Outside of the scriptures that I repeat almost every week, God desires none to perish and all to come to repentance. And it's God's will that none should perish and go to hell. But you know that's why he encourages us to pray for all men, Christians. Outside of those things, you know how else I know that God's heart is that he wants people to get saved? He gives, and he has still given, and he gave to them, those people then, he gave them and us today all these proofs of his word. All these proofs that if we're willing to seek out truth, he gave all these little evidences. In a sense, if you were wanting somebody to find something, but you really wanted to know if they were really interested, you know, you ever heard of the little breadcrumb trick? You know, you hide something and then you leave a little trail of something, a little trail of pennies or a little trail of breadcrumbs. You know, the, the path is there. People just have to seek it out. Where is it? I really want to know that. Where is it? And then if we seek that path, God gave all these breadcrumbs along, these way, along the way, all the prophecies, all the miracles, all the testimonies, all the proofs of the Bible that if we're interested, if we care, we can go along, we can pick up those pennies, and we can pick up that little trail, and we can pick them up, and we can follow our way right to the end of the rainbow, yeah. right to the end of the gold pot, right to the end of to Christ and to truth. We can find it. He left, all, he left us all these proofs so that we could seek him and that we could find him. Jesus Christ loves you so much. He really did come and take the sins of the world upon himself and die for all of our sins on that cross because he loves us so very much. He really did take all your sins upon himself, die for them on the cross, buried them in the grave, and when he rose again, he left them in the grave. He left them so that all that would run to him, all that would seek refuge under him, would not have to worry about paying for their own sins because he already did it. He is the propitiation for all of our sins. That's how much he loves us. And we know that God loves us because of all the proofs that he gave us in his word to show us the way. His desires that we surrender to him as Lord and start to follow him. Jesus, remember, said in Matthew 10, 39, he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That's God's desires that as you seek that path, God wants to reveal it to you. You find it. And then when you find that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you lose your life in Christ. Jesus, I need you. I can't live another day without you. I got to, please be my Lord. I, I want to worship you and I want to follow you. I, this whole life that I live, it's dead. I just want to follow you. I just need you. Please, here I am. Forgive me of all my sins. God, I just need you so much. Will you start to seek him today and look at the proof that God has given to mankind of him and his word and the Bible? And when you find it, will you please surrender to him and start to follow him with all your heart? But that's God's desire for your life. That's God's will for your life to seek Jesus when you find him, to surrender to him and start to follow him. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you so much for this word. Thank you so much for your word today. Thank you so much that we see your heart in scripture. Thank you so much, Lord God, that you give us all these proofs of your word. Lord, that if we're not just willing to just believe whatever lie the world has for us, the openly accepted lies that are in the world of, you know, we, this primordial soup garbage that we came from, Lord, supposedly, Lord, if we're just willing to believe or just even seek 
your truth, Lord. You're willing to reveal yourself to us, Lord. You want to reveal yourself to mankind. You love us so much. I pray, Lord God, if there's anybody listening, Lord God, that's not there, I don't care, Lord, your word says it's not enough to believe in you. It's not enough to have faith in you. Lord, we have to surrender to you. You said, Jesus, all those that desire to come after me must deny themselves, turn away from sin, pick up their cross, meaning literally go and die to self. Just lose our lives in you and follow after me. Those who don't, those who love this life will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Lord, I pray that whoever's listened to this message, Lord God, wherever they may be, if they've not lost their life in you, Jesus Christ, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. I pray you draw them to you, and I pray that you would just open their hearts and help them to see that they're on the wrong path and in need of Jesus Christ and in need of one to come for their sins and one that they may be forgiven and the one that gives us peace, real peace on this earth, not peace that comes through a bottle, not peace that comes through a pill, not peace that comes through anything in this world, Lord. I pray that they would come to see that there's only peace and only in you. Lord, I pray you'd go after them, Lord. I pray you'd draw them to Christ. And I pray that some, even after hearing this, would get saved, that they would lose their lives in Christ and stop living for themselves and surrender unto Jesus. I love you, Lord, and praise you, Lord, and thank you, Lord God. And I ask these things in Jesus' mighty name.